Okay, hey, let's look at the 10th chapter of Acts. You've got your, if you have your Bibles, your Bible app, or right here in the handout, we'll look at this together. Again, I want to I wanna just jump right in. It says, there was a certain man in Caesarea. His name was Cornelius. He was called Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. So he, you know, there are, oh, by the way, there are two Caesareas that are referred to in the New Testament. You'll see them. If you read the Gospels, you're thinking, okay, there, there was this place called Caesarea Philippi. That, that Caesarea Philippi was in the north of Israel. It was at the base of, of Mount, you know, at the bottom of, of Mount Hermon where the, the waters from the Lebanon mountain range flowed down in the Jordan. And uh, in Caesarea Philippi, there was this moment, some of us may remember this, where Jesus asked this question of his disciples. A lot of people had opinions of who he was. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? Just like today, a lot of people have opinions about Jesus. And Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? You hear all the talk. And it was in that moment where Peter, Peter had one of his finest moments. He said, I believe you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus just heart leapt. He said, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. No, I tell you, my father has revealed this to you. Right? And on this revelation, I'll build my kingdom Right? Basically what he was saying was, you didn't just come up with this on your own. God has spoken to you and revealed this to you. It was a powerful moment. That was Caesarea Philippi. But in the New Testament, there's this other Caesarea. It's a Caesarea that is not the Caesarea Philippi. It's called Caesarea Maritima or Maritima. In the Latin, it, it, that's what it's called. But it means Caesarea by the sea. And it's literally the Caesarea that was by the sea of Medi the Mediterranean Sea. Right, And so that Caesarea is a very different kind of Caesarea. Uh, it's located right off the coast. It was, in fact, we just, you know what? Uh, it's mentioned a lot in the book of Acts. It was a predominantly Gentile city that had been built by Herod the Great at an astronomical cost. The city itself boasted a really sp splendid harbor and it had this feel of being a Greco-Roman city. So the Caesarea, where Cornelius the Centurion was stationed, was Caesarea Maritima. And I want you to just kind of get an idea of what it looks like. You can actually go there today. They made it a state park in Israel. It's right off the coast. You can see the blue waters of the Mediterranean. I mean, this is really important. The things that we're reading about, there's real place. These places, you could go there today. We went there, actually, a group of us from the church, at Caesarea Maritima. And look at the way that Herod designed. I mean, you've seen a lot of the ruins now. But look at the way the city was actually outlaid. It's pretty intense when you get a chance to look at the perspective of it. From, I mean, there's a whole amphitheater there. It's just an amazing thing that Herod had developed out. This is the area where... Cornelius was stationed when what we're about to read about happens. And I want us, as we sit with it, because so much of this is based around the Mediterranean coastline of Israel, right? That, that I want us to have that sort of image in our minds, the sights and the smell of what is actually happening right off, this, off of these blue waters. 
and just kind of let that settle in as part of our mind goes back and try to assist with what's happening. Because we're told here that there was this man, Cornelius, who was stationed at Caesarea. And we were told that he was part of a, a, the band of the Roman army that was known as the Italian Regiment. A regiment or a cohort consisted of about 600 soldiers. And those soldiers were divided up into 100 each. So there would be six centuries, you recognize that word, six centuries, six groups of 100 soldiers that were made up a regiment. And that regiment, each one of those 100, were led by a, a soldier, a captain, essentially a centurion. And so Cornelius was one of those centurions. He was responsible for 100 men within the Italian regiment. That's what we're told. But he, he was somebody who was different. He was a Roman officer, and that meant that he was part of the, like a police force, but it, far more than that because it was a, it was a foreign army that was, that was essentially in charge. We, we must remember that at the time, uh, there was a lot of resentment that the Jewish people had. They were given more autonomy than most conquered peoples. We forget how extensive the Roman occupation was. It spread into North Africa, far into Asia as well. All of the Middle East was covered, Europe. I mean, it was a, a massive expansion that the Roman Empire um, ended up building. And they were built a lot of their roads and their sophistication of their, their you know, army was, they, they, had, they had techniques that allowed them to conquer. And they were extraordinarily organized. But the Jewish people despised the Romans in terms of the fact that they had to pay taxes to Caesar. They didn't feel like they were free. They felt like it was an occupied force. And so Cornelius is part of that. But what happened was Cornelius, and this happened, happened at different times in the New Testament, he had seemed to become enthralled and ultimately a believer in the God of Israel. Like being exposed to the Jewish people over time, he began to renounce his ancestor worship and idolatry that had characterized so much of the Roman world and the, and the Roman soldier. And he had at some point turned his heart towards the God of Israel. And he had made a decision to fully embrace God. And he walked in the light as he understood it. He could never be part of the Jewish community, but he could attach himself to a synagogue. And he could be a true believer and he was a man who practiced this sincerely. And look what it says, verse 2. It says he was a devout man. He was sincere, devoted, a person of faith. He had evidently, again, come to believe in the reality of the one true God of Israel. He was a devout man and one who feared. When you see that word feared, it means honored. He honored God with all of his house. And, he, and we're told two other things about him. He was serious. He was committed. And he, and he gave. He gave generously. This Roman soldier... Stationed in Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, has his heart opened up to the God of Israel. And he worships, and he gives, and he prays consistently. He, he prays like, they, like, like the, with the Jewish method of prayer. And the Jewish method of prayer would have been three times a day to pray at certain hours, certain marking points. And he seems to have had a commitment to even that. He would have a time of prayer. Imagine that. This Roman centurion... Not raised or exposed, but has come to a faith in God. And he's so sincere and devout that he prays consistently. But we're told that something happened. Verse 3, look at it. It says about the ninth hour of the day, that would be 3 p.m. 
It says that as he was praying, he saw clearly a vision. So he's praying, and in this, in this mid-afternoon, late afternoon here, he has a vision of an angel of God coming to him. And in this vision, he hears his name mentioned. So he's praying, and he sees a, a being come. He, he senses it's from God. Here's the name Cornelius, and, his, his, and he's afraid. It says, and when he observed him, he was afraid. So in his mind's eye, he's afraid, which would have made sense. So here's this, this man accustomed to battle and warfare, but he's terrified by what he can't explain, but senses, instinctively he senses it's God. And look what he says. He says, what is it, Lord, in this vision? He's having this conversation. And, and look at the, what it says. It says, and this is a fascinating verse, by the way, with huge implications for any of us who are sincere in following the Lord, this verse has so much implications. Do you see it? Look what it says. It says, so, so he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up as a memorial for a memorial before God. It's like they've been building. God's heard them. That is, they have not gone unnoticed, which is a peculiar way of saying they've gotten your giving and your, your prayers have gotten God's attention. So listen to me. Although God hears all things, note this. And for those of us who are taking notes and beginning to try to sit with this even more deeply, note this, that there are evidently some prayers, look at this, that affect God differently, notice, and that it is possible, hear me, to stack our prayers that it is possible to stack. Your prayers have come up like a memorial being built. And they hit, the implication is that it, you know, again, it almost implies that it hit a tipping point and broke something open. Like your prayers have been building. Because here, why is that a big deal? Why is this a big deal? Because a lot of times we, we in, our, in our desperation or in our need or in our desire, we start to pray for something. And we may start out consistently just, you know, taking time to really ask God. We might write out our prayer and, and be sincere in it. And we want to see God do something to help us in a situation or turn something around or open something up. And we're, or we just want to be more, more able to follow the things that he wants us to follow or love the way he wants us to love. Whatever it is that we're trying to pray for. And as we're doing that, we're building those prayers. A lot of times what is, the implication is that those prayers can start stacking up. Now, it got me thinking, I wondered if there are times, because if you're like me, there are certain times where, you know, I start to pray for something, I mean it, I'm very sincere about it, but over time, maybe I start to lose hope, or I feel like, ah, it's going to make a difference anyway. And it's a reminder that some, here's the thing, how did, how did Cornelius know when those prayers hit that tipping point? He didn't. Are there times where we have given up too soon? Are there times where actually it was way closer? Like if we had stayed with this prayer before the Lord, that that, that prayer would have hit that point where heaven moved. But we yielded too soon because we couldn't see it. It's just an interesting thing to consider. I'm looking at Cornelius, and he's stacking his prayers as a memorial before God. And he, and he really does present a picture of a believer walking in the true light of God as he understood it. So he, he's real. He's a real believer. He, he's not Jewish. He can't really get all the way in, but as an outsider Gentile who some people don't like, but they respect, 
But he's serious about following God, and he has this moment. But here's the key. He was following God as sincerely as he could. And he's ultimately going to become the first Gentile ever to become part of the church of Jesus. And he's going to, but, but clearly he was viewed by God as needing something more than what he had. More, more than what he had. As good as he was, as righteous as he was, as devout as he was, as sincere as he was, the, the, the fact is he needed more or the entire episode of what we're going to look at here would have been irrelevant, superfluous, unnecessary. Like what's the point of it? The point of it was is that this man of Rome, this spiritual seeker, had come as far as he could apart from the good news of Jesus, and now he would be given more light because he had walked faithfully with the light that he had been given. To whom it is given, more will be given, right? There is that sense of what Jesus was saying when we receive it. There's this element of him, he hungers. Now, look what it says. In this vision, he's told, there's a, I want you to, in the vision, send men to Joppa. Okay, send men to Joppa. Now, that's verse 5 there, you see it? And send them to Joppa and find a, a man whose surname is Peter. So in this vision, he's told, God's heard your prayers, and you need to do something. I need you to send men to Joppa to find a man named Simon Peter. Now, Joppa, today, isn't, it's not really called Joppa. But if you go to Israel, again, you would see that there is a town on the Mediterranean called Jaffa. J-A-F-F-A. That's how the signs read. And this is exactly where it is. And it's actually quite a place to go. You can go there today. You can actually go there. It's, it's a town that's been built. It's a, it's a little city. And people live there, right off the coast of the Mediterranean. It's part of Israel. It's just 30 miles down from Caesarea Maritima. Right, right along the Mediterranean. You can see the waters. Beautiful, the waters of the Mediterranean. So Cornelius is told in this vision... Send for a man named Simon, whose surname is Peter, who's staying in Jaffa. Joppa. Go to him. He's actually lodging. Look what it says in verse 6. He's lodging with another man named Simon, who's a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Find him, and he will tell you what you must do next, what you need to do. Now, some of us are going, Simon the tanner by the sea. And we're going, hmm. This guy must have really liked the sun. He had a profession of just getting a tan a lot. And uh, that makes sense, like a club med kind of thing, right? Simon the tanner, man, that, that's what he liked to do. Now, here's the thing. A tanner is somebody who worked with, with, <laughs> worked with like skin of dead animals and turned them into leather. He tanned the hides. And as such, it was a kind of a, a difficult occupation most people wouldn't want to do it. Uh, a tanner would be someone who usually had to live on the outskirts of a city because people didn't want them around. The reason they didn't want them around is because a lot of times those skins would come in and they would still have hair and, and, and fat on them and they needed to be cleaned. It would come up with like a, a solution. And those solutions, they didn't have the, like chemicals like we do today, but they would come up with something that essentially had the same effect and it would soak it and it was very odorous and it, it stunk. And um, it was noxious, and it just, no one wanted to be neighbor with a tanner, right? That was just not what you wanted. And so tanners were really kind of pushed on the outskirts of society. I mean, that's a very interesting thing to note, uh, because one of the things that we, we see here is that 
even though most people wouldn't have been hanging out with tanners, Peter, and we must not forget, he was a Hebrew through and through. I mean, Peter, I mean, he, I lo he loved his people. He, he had all the sense of self, self um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to borderline call it a prejudice, um, a, a sense of, of being the chosen people. And um, that past of his was strong in him. It was deeply rooted, the way he viewed things ethnically and socially and religiously. We, we, we read this, we don't really appreciate it. So it's actually a pretty revealing thing that he's, um, to note that he's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. It's, it's really evidence of the kind of change that God had been working in Peter. Because and you might go, well, you know, certainly the old Peter, the pre-Pentecost, certainly the pre-Jesus Peter, would have never stayed with this guy. Ever. He would have never been friends with Simon the Tanner. You might go, why? What's the problem? I mean, is it just, the, the, here's why. In the Older Testament, in the scriptures of Peter's day, it was clear that anybody who worked with dead animals was ceremoniously unclean. And so if you were a serious person and you regarded the law of Moses, and you took it as it, as it was stated, you would not engage, just like the Pharisees would say, that person's unclean to Jesus. If you, Peter had that element in him. Like, you, if you were serious, you would not be engaging with someone. You would go, it's necessary, but I really can't be friends with them. It's, it's necessary, but I, I, I just can't engage with someone who works with dead animals. They're unclean. And so the fact is that Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner, who's a believer in Jesus as well now, is a statement about some of the barriers that are breaking already in the early church. Like, it is going into places that nowhere, no one else had gone. That just didn't happen. The fact that he's staying there. And what it tells us is that Peter's uh, conception of Jesus had now gone, got, gone beyond the borders in his own, with his own people. It, it, it was now including, in the same way that, that Jesus had modeled it, it was including outsiders as well. People were being included into it that in the past. And, and here's the thing. Um, he, it's partly because he could never forget, I think, the example of Jesus. And we note that. I think he remembered Jesus' example. Jesus never shunned the outcast. And um, he always made room for them. And I think all of a sudden, Peter's having to wrestle with this principle. Jesus never shunned the outcast. And here's something I want us to just note, and, and neither should we. And his love base, he had a broad love base, Jesus did. It was something I know that impressed Peter. It is, it's true. Jesus had been fully submitted to the scriptures. Remember this, this is very important. His morality and his sexual propriety was unquestioned, were unquestioned even by his critics. So they could say, you are a friend of sinners, but they didn't say, this is what you do, because he didn't do it. He engaged people that made people feel uncomfortable. He engaged people. He had, like, like no one, this is the thing. Nobody was outside of the range of his love. That's, it was one of the amazing things about Jesus. Peter had seen that firsthand. He had watched it firsthand. Nobody was outside the range of the love of Jesus. He would engage anyone at any time. But at the same time, uh, he, would, he would call them up. He would... He would challenge them to alter their way of being, and he would give them permission to turn a new page and to become free in God. It, it, it was, but he did it without, there was not like a spirit of, of condemnation upon, upon Jesus to, like, trying to exploit what was an obvious thing. He came into places that a lot of times surprised people. They called him derisively 
a friend of sinners. They meant that as an insult. You hang out with publicans and, pro and prostitutes. We've seen you. You go to the house of, of tax collectors. And you sit with the unclean. Jesus didn't deny it. In fact, he almost took it as an emblem of, of you know, if I can say this way, he almost wore it like a badge of honor. As he said, you know, I, those who are whole don't need a, don't need a physician. Those, those who are sick need, need a physician. But then he didn't let them off the hook either. He says, but you need God way more than you realize. There's a powerful dynamic. The, other, the thing that we notice about Jesus is he walks this perfect line of being able to have a broad love base, but he had a focused truth base. And it's something I want to just have us at least acknowledge is that this, is that we, God wants us to broaden our love base, but at the same time, not to the extent that we lose sight of our truth base. And you may say, what are you talking about? I'm just talking about the way of Jesus. It's just full of grace and truth. If we only focus on one of those two things, we miss the wholeness of who Jesus was. He was a friend of sinner, listen, sinners, and he was sinless. He was an advocate of exceptional grace, and yet he called people to line up and live in a way that was pleasing and aligned with the scriptures. He called them to repent, turn around, and change your ways. He didn't just say, whatever you do is fine. He called them into a place of the kingdom, but he always did it out of a place of love. Now, here's the thing. We, 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 we need to understand, we live in a culture where sometimes following the way of Jesus is going to almost feel like being countercultural. Um, the, the Bible says, do not be conformed to this world. He's talking to believers. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into, that's the word conformed, shaped into our culture. Do not be defined by what culture values. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think different. Be willing to go against the grain of dominant group think. Walk the way of Jesus. And there are times where it means we're swimming with the current. But then there are other times where the culture goes this way and we are still walking with Jesus this way. Well, that's a clash. What do we do with that? We go with him. We do it with humility and with love, radical love, but we walk the way of Jesus. And it is a very countercultural kind of message and approach that we take. It was something that Peter himself was wrestling with. Where do you draw your lines? Like Peter is trying to think this through. Now in this particular case, he's trying to figure out, you know, in his mind, let me tell you how Peter's world shaped up right now when it came to who, was, who, who he could fellowship with. He had now gotten to the point where he goes, I can be with, you know, any, any Jewish person in any place of society no one, no, no, no one is outside of this invitation to Jesus. So in his mind, Simon the Tanner was as much welcomed into the kingdom as any other Jew, who, the most powerful and wealthy of his own countrymen. They were all, everybody was welcomed in the message of Jesus. That line was gone. And in his mind too, the line between a Samaritan and a Jew, which was always there. Samaritans were partially Jewish. They had a hybrid religion. But the message of Jesus had gone to Samaria and been received. So even Peter and John had witnessed it with their own eyes earlier in the book of Acts. They couldn't deny it. So in Peter's mind, okay, the, the kingdom of Jesus, the way of Jesus is open to all Jews. Doesn't matter where they are in the social status or if they are clean or unclean. All that stuff doesn't matter. And, and he says, and it's open to Samaritans. But Gentiles and especially Romans they have to come through the Jewish gate. 
And that's what Jesus was going to get at. That. Everyone has an opportunity to come to Christ. And Peter was just going to, just, he wasn't prepared, but his paradigm was about to get exploded. Here's the thing. Following Jesus, and we'll leave it here. Following Jesus is a life of continual breaking and remaking. I don't think we ever fully arrive until the day we die. And even then, who knows what awaits us from the creative God who brings all things alive again. I mean, Peter, Peter's going to have to wrestle with his paradigm of God's grace. He's a Hebrew through and through, like I mentioned. Um, but the Lord, we're going to, okay, you know what we're going to see, you guys? We're going to see. The Lord is going to break him down. It's going to break him down, and, and then he's going to break him out. And you often hear me talk about this, about the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough that leads to the breakout. And this is a, a way of thinking about our life with God. A lot of times we get, we get ourselves in these places where we're in a season of breakdown. And seasons of breakdown can hit us where we're struggling and we're wrestling and we're, we're confronted with weakness or, or frailty or anxiety or great questions that we're trying to push through. And those places are really hard places. It could be doubt. It, it could be like life isn't going. We're trying to understand our relationship with God in these places. Things are breaking down. Things are hard. It's not easy. But if we just stick with the Lord out of those breakdown places, often it turns and then a breakthrough emerges. Like sometimes God just like something breaks free in us. And what we've been wrestling with and having a hard time with all of a sudden is like the Lord comes. And I don't know how else to describe it, but there's like a breakthrough. Sometimes it comes just being in his house and we hear a word. And that word is like shot like an arrow and it hits us. Boom. And it's, it breaks. We feel a breakthrough in our heart. All of a sudden, that thing that's been hanging on me gets sort of get broken out. It's starting to get broken. And then out of that, a lot of times out of the, the breakthrough, because the breakdowns make us humble, and the breakdowns make us vulnerable, and the breakdowns create the possibility of turning to God in ways that we would not have turned if everything was going the way it was easy. And so frequently, it's out of life's pain or struggle that something is birthed in us. And that if we stick with the Lord, that's where the breakthrough comes. But here's the thing. That breakthrough, all of a sudden, sometimes, and I've seen this in life, I've seen it in my own life, it pops. You know, we finally get a breakthrough. Like, oh, we're seeing something now. We're getting a point of unity now. The Lord is moving, and we both are recognizing I'm recognizing it, or something's changing. I can feel it in my heart, in my mind. I'm seeing what I never saw before, a breakthrough. And then that sometimes pops into a breakout. And all of a sudden, it's, it's like, whoa, now I'm, I'm growing with God. I mean, I'm, things are opening up for me. Imagine that thing just opens up, and now I'm on the run. I'm on the run. Wide space, open space, big space, on the move. I'm running. I'm taking ground in God. I'm really understanding. I mean, I'm real, these things are happening. Breakthroughs happening. I'm seeing healing happen. My attitude's shifting. Every, it's like a bust out. The breakdown that leads to the breakthrough, that leads to the breakout. I love that, and that's what's gonna happen to Peter. You know what, the Lord wants to grow us, and when we get out, once it starts opening up, 
And if you stick with the Lord long enough, listen, it, the, the way the Lord meant our life with him to be was not a, a static, marginal, ho-hum thing. It's meant to be alive. He did not say, when he was describing his kingdom's reality, he says, when you welcome me into your life, he says, it will be like a river of water flowing through you, river of life. He didn't say it will be like a stagnant pond <laughs> contained and dying. No, it's alive. Inflow, outflow. The difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea has no outlet. But the Sea of Galilee has water coming and going. This is the way the way of Jesus was meant to be lived. You understand that? All in. It doesn't work so well. Here's the thing. Our culture has no answers for what ails society. I mean none. And to turn our back on God, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. When we turn ourselves away from God, watch things unravel. There are no checks. There are no checks. It just, but when we turn towards the Lord, we open up possibility of healing and life flow. That's why the, the person who, well, better watch how I phrase this. A per, even the most unlearned person whose heart is open to God has more potential for expansion than the most intelligent person whose heart is closed. It is not Jesus taught us the scriptures to the wisdom of this world that ultimately can solve the issue. It's the Lord at work. But it doesn't work halfway. My grandfather, who was a pastor and my mentor, I remember when I was a teenager just starting to follow Jesus, I made a real commitment, a real commitment. How ironic is it? I used to call him Gramps. Now, now I am one. Okay, but here's, you know what he, one time I was a teenager and I said to him, Gramps, this is hard, you know, I don't know, you know, this is really hard. And, and he turned to me and he said, and some of you have heard me say this, but he says, listen, I was expecting a nice pat on the back, let me hold your hand and let's, he didn't. He said, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, Follow Jesus. And he walked away from me. <laughs> if you're going to follow him, follow him. Make your mind up. It's not always going to be easy. You decide. But it was like one of those things where if we're in, we're in. And it's not conditional in. I'm in. I'll give you my heart, Lord. I welcome your life into me. Through the ups and downs, the good and the bad, all of it. I give you all of it, me. Take me, broken man that I am, whatever I can give you. I'll, I'm open. I want to run. Now, sometimes I can't get out. Sometimes it's a struggle. Some seasons are really hard. Some seasons I'm just contending for a breakthrough. But every now and then, we pop out and whoosh, we're on the run. And we're growing. Right? That's what we want. I'm going to watch that happen to Peter. All right, let's pray together. Lord, I thank you because... Um,
you know, we, we talk about bringing our hearts before you and about what you can do. And again, uh, our world, though sincere, our culture, it has no answers. It, it has no answers. It only can identify problems, but the answers don't work. But we ask for you to be the great answer. You are the truth giver. You are the life giver. And we ask you, we welcome you in, Lord, to every place, every space. We do not want to turn from you, but turn towards you. And I ask that you would nurture and fan into flame the seeds of faith that are already growing in our lives. Bring them to pass, Lord. And at some point, give us a breakout season in our life with you that we really see you doing amazing things and we see real growth happening in us, real capacity to bless beginning to emerge, real understanding of who you are. That's what we desire. So I just ask for your blessing over our closing time, uh, closing time of giving, our closing song that we end with, like our benediction prayer together. We just ask for this. We thank you for the time that we've shared together. Let our hearts be alive in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.